Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies. I'm Garrett Brown, the host of the channel. On today's program, I'm speaking with Sarah Rudin about her new translation of Augustine's Confessions, published by the Modern Library in June of 2017. Sarah Rudin was educated at the University of Michigan, Johns Hopkins, and Harvard, from which she graduated with a PhD in classical philology. She has translated six books of classical literature and contributed her Aeschylus Orestia to a collection of tragedy in English. Her translation of Augustine's Confessions was her first book-length work of sacred literature. Join me in welcoming Sarah Rudin to the program. Sarah Rudin, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, not too long ago, we spoke about your book about translating the Bible and that's the face of the water. And we talked about your approach and process in rendering Hebrew and Koine Greek into English. Uh, but in your new book, A Translation of Augustine's Confessions, you're tackling Latin again. Is Latin the classical language that you move in most often? Yeah, I was, um, in my formal studies of classics, I was really a Latinist. So this is the ancient language I know the best. Okay. And do you have a, a fondness for Latin over Greek or for other languages? Or, uh, but, but I know you've published uh, at least two translations uh, from Greek, but um, uh, how do you think about the differences or the way you approach them? Okay. Well, I have a, uh, I, I'm really attached to Latin. Um, and because I learned it, this was the first um, ancient language I learned. And, uh, you know, I was close to, to both my professors of Latin um, as I was you know, studying it at Bowling Green State University from, from the age of 16. Um, and we learned by spoken Latin, as, as um, you know, I was telling you before. So it was a real, it was quite a human experience for me. You know, I learned Latin by talking to people. So uh, I guess it's uh, my attachment to the language is greater for that reason. Uh, but certainly uh, there is stunning um, literature in, in Latin, just uh, absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. And I remember uh, at Harvard, Professor Wendell Clausen getting indignant at this prevailing idea that that. Greek culture is loftier. Greek culture is superior. Uh, you know, um, Romans are really just soldiers, and jocks, and bureaucrats. <laughs> and, you know, they, they, they couldn't uh, have the sublime literary experiences that, that the Greeks did. And he thought that was nonsense, and I kind of think that's nonsense, too. Certainly, if you read Virgil, uh, it's difficult to imagine literature getting being more beautiful being more resonant. Mm. What what kinds of literature are you thinking about in specific? 
Oh, well, um, I'm thinking about, um, say, Horace, uh, the, the, the Roman poet Horace. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, some people think that he is, he's the greatest poet who ever existed. He um, uh, wrote odes, for example, which are really astonishing pieces of, pieces of literature. And um, but they they're very difficult to translate. They are hardly read in the modern world um, because he he doesn't have you know much topical connection to us. He he writes about um, his um, upper class patrons. Um, he he writes about uh, you know drinking and dancing and having a good time and and uh he has patriotic poetry there's there's it, it's difficult to connect with him uh emotionally or or practically uh so his his works his poems which are just so um utter, utterly perfect in form just um amazing doc documents uh, they they just don't get the attention that they should get, and, mm-hmm. and, um, and they're like, you know, I'm 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 wondering whether Jane Austen um, will suffer the same fate uh, in centuries to come. You know, here you have an author of of just perfect style and balance, um, of incredible incredible technical skill, yet you know she's writing about. Uh, each time she's writing about two or three families right. in, in right. provincial England, and you know why? Why do we? Why is this so wonderful? And because it's in English, we can tell. Mm-hmm. But you know, you you um, go a couple linguistic removes for, from her, and people are saying, "Huh? What? You know, what's the big deal?" Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, another stylist is of course Virgil, um, and you've translated the Aeneid. Uh, as well as his eclogues, is that right? Didn't you start out uh, with the translation of the eclogues? Yes, I, I translated. It was three or four eclogues. Anyway, I was very young, and and they were never published. Uh, that was an, an, an that was my undergraduate thesis. Oh, okay. And so you were you commissioned by Yale to translate the Aeneid, or how did that come about? Uh, yes. This was so uh, a number of years ago. Uh, this was my first, I would say, major translation. Uh, you know, I got to a place in my career where I would have to translate something that was really very often assigned uh, for classroom use, um, or I was going to have to find something to do with my life. Um, you know, they, uh, it, the economics of, of publishing are, are just really difficult. Uh so, yeah, we we looked around, and, and this was what I what I ended up doing, um, and it wasn't an obvious choice for me because you need this great war poem. I'm a Quaker pacifist, um, so it didn't seem like uh, this was a congenial project for me. But you know, I ended up with the most tremendous respect for Virgil. Uh, you need is is really a a great, great document. Indeed. And the two other uh, things you're known for, the Satyricon and the, the Golden Ass, both of those 
probably could be aptly described as ribald. I think one of the things that, uh, you know, the there's a lot of humor that's embedded in those work, maybe not so much in Virgil, but um, uh, how much has that been a part of the challenge of, of representing uh, the, uh, the Latin in English? Well, humor is, humor is really difficult. Uh, body literature is also very difficult to render. Um, the things date. So, um, uh, you know, so, so readily jokes notoriously, you know, date within five or 10 years. They are just not funny or most of them are not funny over, over long stretches of time. Um, also the, um, uh, tastes in body literature change, change tremendously. Uh, we are horribly offended by a great deal that we, that we, um, see in, in, uh, Aristophanes, for example, rape jokes. And I have mm. translated, uh, I've translated, uh, Aristophanes with the strata, uh, and that's a, that's tough, uh, because he uh, goes against so many of our cherished values, particularly, you know, respect for women, for wives, for mothers in particular. Uh, he isn't there, <laughs> you know. He is, uh, he's just um, his mission is against all, all pieties. Uh, yeah. So, so what do you do with this this work to make it? not just readable for modern American audience, stageable. And that's really tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've, I have had a great deal of fun with Milo's Estrada, not so much in writing it, but in sharing it. And um, first with the Quakers, um, you know, I gave a reading from it at a Quaker gathering um, in Africa and uh, it went over really well uh, because people just liked this idea. Quakers liked this idea of you know, women holding, withholding sex from their husbands until um, a war until a war ends. Uh, and uh, that's that fable, you know, the basis of the basis of of, of this play mm-hmm. uh, has endured. People do like that idea. You know, they just find find their way around the anachronisms. A staging is always um, interesting, often hilarious. Um, so, oh, let's see. The, I, I've only been able to to attend, I think, three three productions out of twenty or so that have that have happened. Mm-hmm. And in at mm-hmm. one of them, this was in um, Athens, Georgia, and a community theater put on the play, and. Um, I was able to, I happened to be, you know, um, in the neighborhood. So, so I was able to attend the play and my sister who lives in Northern Georgia came, came along too. And I was kind of, I was really nervous. My sister is, uh, very traditional, very religious, you know, devoted wife and mother. What would she think of this body farce? And, she laughed so hard that I thought she would choke. <laughs> uh, they, they had, um, you know, one big question that you have mm-hmm. to deal with about staging is, is you know, how, how do you render these phalluses? 
these were a part, an, an ordinary part of, of the comic stage mm-hmm. costume in ancient Athens. Uh, so what what do you do with them? This is this is not something usual to have on a on a stage um, in modern America. So they had they had phalluses, which were um, just like huge stuffed toys, and they were attached to hydraulic a sort of hydraulic lift. So the actor discreetly presses a button, and the phallus goes up or it goes down, you know, depending on the lines. Oh goodness! And and yeah, that's um, now. I I I know that um, you know some of my readership is is uh, traditionally and devoutly religious, mm-hmm. and um, I think that then for the most part they've been very open minded um, in knowing about my my sordid past. And accepting, you know, accepting that that I have, um, you know, translated some some really body literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, that's excellent. And, yeah, yeah. That they they just they they understand. Yeah, this is this is part of our cultural heritage too. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, they are they are not deeply offended when I tell them. Yes, there there are body verses of the Bible. You know, the the dirty joke was was not a no um, to to um, uh, to the ancient Jews and to the early Christians. Right, but if one learns anything from your work, it's really that this much wider uh, reading of the literature of the ancient world helps to, you to understand the context into which people like Saint Paul or the Gospel writers are. You know, they're the world in which they're moving and the kind of literature that's out there. And I, I think that, uh, so over and over again, your work reminds us that this broader possible reading helps you to see what's distinctive in, uh, not only Jewish literature, but also the early Christian literature. I, that's something that I've benefited from, um, you know, from, from your earlier work, particularly Paul among the people. Mm, Yeah. Um, I think it, it really helps in being sympathetic to to Paul if you imagine him surrounded by pagan imagery of of nudity, of sex acts, of um, athleticism, and um, the Greeks, you know, um, competed in the nude. Mm-hmm. Uh, something something absolutely un- unknown and unacceptable in, in, in Jewish culture. Um, there were, there were actually, um, well, you have Hellenized Jewish culture and, and, um, then some really, um, serious conflicts arise. Say you're, uh, a, a Jewish man is in the diaspora sending his, his, or in, even in Palestine, you know, wants to send his sons to the gymnasium. Um, so that they will get uh, athletic training, wrestling practice. Um, yeah, so these are these were the outstanding controversies and points of conflict in in Paul's world. And um, you can just think about his idea of the human person, um, derived mainly from his from his Jewish background, and. Um, I think you have to construe that he thought that the pagan idea of the of the person 
was um, degraded, brutalized, um, violent, um, hyper-competitive. And he's, he's got a very different idea about um, what, a, what a person is. Mm-hmm. And just to maybe um, cite one instance, which would have some modern resonance, um, uh, there was a real cult of youth in um, Greco-Roman culture. Um, and you can see it in, in statuary and, and in other artistic depictions, also in, in erotic poetry, um, that the, the young man, the beautiful, nude young man, uh, is, is put forth as you know, the, highest, the highest expression of, of humanity, the most beautiful, beautiful thing there is. Well, I think Paul would have said, wait, wait a second, you know, the human, bo- the human body is a thing. It is a, it is a perishable thing. And uh, to um, you know to 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 hold it up as as the most the most desirable thing in the world, and to equate it with divinity because a, a nude statue is usually associated with divinity. Um, you know this is this is highly highly problematic. I think you would have said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, and I just think that. I think of our of our media culture, uh, social media culture, advertising culture, and I think, yeah, you know, I really, I really can jive with, with Paul. Hmm. That's interesting, and I, I see the way in which this broader reading, even with some of the body literature, sort of undergirds, <clears throat> you know, your approach and your sensibility to Augustine, as we'll see, um, especially as he tackles with some of the, uh, you know, his. Uh, you know, guilt over past sins or his sensuousness or uh, <clears throat> some of the things that he's tempted to idolatry. Um, but, uh, you know, just to go back to an earlier point that you made, I, I really, I love this, uh, this rivalry between, um, you know, ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Uh, I recently heard a, an hour long debate between the historian Mary Beard and the former mayor of London, Boris Johnson, where they each took sides. Um, and it's such great fun. I highly recommend it. Um, but, you know, even Augustine himself says that he hated uh, studying Greek, uh, but was infatuated with studying Latin. So, you know, how, how is it that you uh, perceive, you know, Augustine's own uh, relationship to language uh, that's not Latin, which I understand he was, he was, um, he was, he spoke, uh, he was a Natin late Latin speaker. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Right. So would he actually, well, that's, the consensus. that's the consensus. So, um, yeah. so would he have been mainly reading in Latin or would he also have known, uh, Greek literature as well, not in translation? Um, <laughs> well, you know, his, his attitude, um, toward Greek, um, I think has a lot to do with his particular circumstances. And he says, um, well, he, he tells us how much he, he, he loved Virgil. He, he really enjoyed the Aeneid. Uh, and he said, well, you know, why, why didn't I like Greek? Because there are fantastical tales in, in, in Greek too. Uh, and um, it was because he, he had to learn 
um, had to learn Greek in an academic setting. He he associates it with getting whomped on by the by the teacher. He associates it with with work, and um, he, he didn't come to this language naturally. Um, so yeah, he just didn't he didn't like it as much. Um, he did. I think he plays down how good his Greek was because in um, a work called Unchristian Doctrine, he he plays the philologist with with um, Greek scripture. So he's he's talking, for example, about a New Testament passage and different ways you can read it and um, how logically you should read it. Uh, but he says, of course, you know. Uh, we don't get into the scholarly um, nitty-gritty or we don't worry about it because what's important is faith and, and you know, the church's doctrine. So uh, we don't get all stressed out about, about the technicalities here. So, you know, his Greek was, I think, uh, quite, quite usable, but it wasn't. This is this is really important. He before a, a short while before his conversion, he gets hold of certain philolog- uh, philosophical works in Latin translation, mm. and they are very exciting to him. And he's able to sort of put some um, reasoning together um, that led him toward his. Uh, so-called conversion, this great moment in the in the um, um, garden when he becomes not a believer, but when he decides to actually dedicate um, his life to God. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been a believer all the time. Um, anyway, there was something about these translations that he could... Um, there was something about these works that he could access in Latin, but not in Greek. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he wouldn't have so, had access to the, um, you know, to the Gospels or the other books of the New Testament in, in the original languages. He would be, it would be through the Vulgate or a proto-Vulgate? Well, um, very likely that, that he did have access in Greek. Likely he did know a word of Hebrew. Hmm. That was the pro- that was, that's the major difficulty in dealing with with um, uh, in dealing with his quotate Bible quotations mm-hmm. the, the so that the Old Testament is at two removes from him so he's he likes to use um, Latin work that we we call the old Latin so this is pre-vulgate okay uh, yeah and so Jeremy is um, you know during during Augustine's own time, and in actual communication with Augustine, occasionally, uh, Jeremy is working on what will become the Vulgate, or the Standard Latin Bible. You have, um, before this, you have so-called um, Old Latin versions, and that they're kind of a crummy, they're, they're really not very good. Um, they are um, translation of, of the Bible, um, they would seem to come um, from the Greek version. They don't. They don't have any. They don't show any access that I can see anyway to the to the Hebrew. Um, but 
that that seems to be Augustine's go-to Bible, right. the, the so-called Old Latin. Okay. And he, you know, but he he can go he can go to Greek apparently uh, when when he wants to, uh, and um, you know there are, there are lots of his writings that show that show that he had you know some reasonable knowledge of Greek of the scripture in Greek. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one question I wondered uh, while I was reading through your new translation was how much of the biography of the individual helps or hinders or is necessary in the work of translation is, is a good lexicon actually better than a good biography? Um, how, how do you approach that? I, I know you mentioned the recent biography by Robin Fox Lane. Um, and of course the venerable Peter Brown should receive a shout out here, but um, mm-hmm. in some, in some ways we, you know, we moderns might be more tempted to biography over the confessions, but uh, thinking it would provide a, you know, a more objective account. But um, how how does it factor in the work of translation? Right. Um, well, I'm trying to, to do something new in translating this, um, uh, in the confessions, which is... Um, Maybe not the very first um, autobi- autobiography. Um, you know, there are some competitors, a couple competitors for the, for that title. But um, it is, uh, at any rate, you know, a very very early autobiography and and foundational, seminal, um, very important for for the way that we consider what biography is, how it should be written. Um, Anyway, this is sort of a this is the this is the okay corral of my work as a as, as a translator uh-huh. because you know whenever whenever you work as as a translator of of, of ancient literature you you gotta um, you gotta be the the avatar of this try to be the avatar of of an author um, you gotta um, walk in his shoes you gotta put on his clothes you have to um, uh, eat, sleep, and hike him. Um, you know, you gotta, you gotta live this this author. So, in the confessions, um, you know, this is the author writing about himself um, right, and right. revealing himself, you know, more intimately than you know any any author has to date. Um, and and so he is. But but of course he is putting on a mask himself. He is he is creating this persona for himself, um, a highly worked, highly literary persona. Um, there is no, um, I think the word realism is incredibly inappropriate to use of to use of of ancient literature. Right. It is it is all an artifice. Everything is created. You know, every sentence is um, uh, elaborated and shaped to um, project and um, idealized mm-hmm. person. Um, so that you really can't talk about a, a historical author. You you, can, you really have to talk about his his. Um, his artistic self in this work. Right. Did Augustine have a, a James Boswell of sorts who can 
tell us whether or not his literary persona had any relationship to the man in his dealings with others? No, um, I, I I think he had he had absolutely nobody. He was he was a very solitary person. He had a you know group of um, uh, Christian seekers around him when he was when he was fairly young, around the time of his conversion, and who who people who lived and studied with him intimately. Uh, but several of them died quite young, and we don't. We don't hear from any of them. Uh, hmm. We don't hear, um, certainly don't hear about him from from any of them. Uh, he was close to his mother, and she, like um, nearly all women in the ancient world, um, left nothing um, uh, in writing for us. Um, so, yeah, he's he's on his own. Right. We don't have... Okay, um... Cicero's situation is is ideal. So you've got all of these letters um, of his, uh, which were published posthumously, including a lot of letters he would have suppressed had he had the chance. Uh, and he's, you see him as as you know in the center of this um, uh, political, literary, philosophical group, and you're hearing back and forth uh, about of different one ones of them. Um, and, um, that's true to a very limited degree when we look at Augustine's letter. So we can see him maybe corresponding with somebody like Jeremy and, and, um, we get at least on, on an intellectual level, um, an idea of this back and forth. There are letters, um, but there's nobody, there's nobody really who, had would have had any interest in mediating Augustine to us. He mediates himself, and he's got both, you know, tremendous virtuosity in doing this. Right. Also, very limited, um, very limited motivation to be actually confessional. If if you look in the work for for revelations that are really, really embarrassing, you find awfully few of them. Now, I, I, you know, he's, uh, the the uh, Confessions is, is, number one, it's a bad, it's a bad translation of the title, mm-hmm. uh, because this, this is not Confessions, as in going to Confession, uh, this is testimony. So you give this is the testimony you give in public as witness uh, to your faith. Right. So exactly. Think of think of the difference between that and confessing a sin to a priest if you if you happen to be um, in the you know Catholic tradition and, and you know you you have that ritual where you go and you tell him you know, the most horrible thing that, you have, that you've done recently um, in all detail and in privacy. Uh, no, the confession is a public, a public testimony. So what you see there is, is really odd, uh, especially in relation to, to our expectations of, of, of confession, of confessional literature. 
Augustine says, okay, well, we were just so horrible. We were, we were oh, what little thugs we were, you know, and how hard we were uh, for this town to deal with. We, we went and we robbed a pear tree of its you know, ugly and impalatable fruit. We threw it to the hogs. Well, yeah, okay, who, 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 who cared? Um, the, the hog farmer, you probably saved the hog farmer some, some trouble. Uh, you know, giving the giving the hogs this this food, um, but he he depicts this this sin as just burning on his in his conscience, mm-hmm. and it gets more space than his um, discarding his long term mistress with whom he had uh, a beloved child. Um, he has to split with her. He loves her. He's been faithful to her. Uh, she goes back to Africa, and she's gonna she's gonna be living a uh, a retired devotional life herself. Um, he doesn't say this. This really bends my mind. Um, he doesn't say. He said it. You know, felt like his guts were being ripped out, and and um. So, but she is dealt with. That parting with her is dealt with in in a sentence or two. Um, right. Yeah. This is, doesn't say anything about what that process was like. Yeah. It's interesting. And, that and yet you get a whole, sorry, you, you get a whole, um, long, prolonged meditative passage about the pear tree. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Go on. No, it's okay. Um, you know, this character of the work and that we, we, we approach it through this, uh, you know, this more literal translation of confessions from Confessio. Um, You know, it's something you point out that Gary Wills notes it should be called the testimonies. Um, Peter Brown, you know, uh, makes the point that the confessions is not a book of reminiscences. You know, they are an anxious turning to the past. And he, he quotes someone else saying the note of urgency is unmistakable. And his quote is, allow me, I beseech you, grant me to, wind around and around in my present memory, the spirals of my errors. And I look this up in your translation and it's saying, you say, um, I'm going to read a little bit more of the context here. For my part, I wanted to plead my humiliations because they glorify you. I beg you, let me through today's memories tour the detours of my bygone wrongheadedness and slaughter for you a victim which is the gift of my rejoicing. <clears throat> this is very, very powerful language, um, uh, kind of backward looking, but without the kind of specifics that you've been talking about, that we would expect these embarrassing you know, admissions, and we're not seeing that, and yet we're seeing an attitude uh, toward the past and perhaps also to the future. Um, is, that, is that your sense of things too? Yeah, yeah, I- I, I think that is right, um, and um, I think it's really important to to represent the uh, poetic form of these reminiscences. Because mm-hmm. Augustine was Augustine was a rock star. We have trouble getting our minds around this because, you know, we have a certain idea of, of who the, the culture hero is or, or who we think the culture hero 
should be. Uh, but it, in the ancient world, this was this was a literary man, um, and um, somebody who could preach um, riveting sermons again and again and again. You know, who could um, um, take part in public debates about about theology and. Um, you know, he was the go-to go-to guy against against heresy in in North Africa because he could draw the crowds, and um, he could defeat his opponent not just with um, logical arguments, but with very striking very striking language. This is what he was trained to do um, from boyhood. It was the main focus of of education. Mm-hmm. Um, in in those times, you know, a boy would he would learn he would learn to speak and write impressively. That was pretty much the whole of his the whole of his education. Mm-hmm. And Augustine was somebody who who rose from the lower middle class, uh, you know, from a very obscure place in in uh, the Roman Empire, and. Um, you know, got near to the center of center of power. Uh, he was the rhetor. He was he was the education director of Milan, which was then the center center of the empire. And he could have had had he he not um, uh, decided on a life of, of Christian devotion. He he could have had pretty high flying um, administrative career. Um, so he was. Um, he was not, you know, his position was not owing to his piety, um, his faith, his his uh, you know personal virtue. It was owed to his leadership with words. Um, he could he could work a crowd like nobody else could. Hmm. But when when he comes to write, writing his autobiography, his his. The question in the back of his mind, you know, and the question that that his fellow clergy had, um, you know, concerning the use for this this um, this work was, well, you know, what is it doing for our for our cause? Yeah, and that was a that was a fairly shaky cause um, in that in that time and place because I, I I did read in Robin, Robin Lane Fox that donatism which was not a heresy, but a schism, um, was stronger in North Africa um, during this period than um, so-called Catholic, um, that is mainstream, Catholicism. Um, more more than the, the, the type of Christianity that was sponsored by the Roman state and that was becoming um, uh, authoritarian, uh, authoritative. Mm-hmm. So... Oh. They had to. It was like it was. It was like a football game. You know, they they had to win um, the the Heisman Trophy of of Christian doctrine, um, or they were going to they were going to face being forgotten. Um, other other people were going to determine what what Christianity would be for the future. And this was, I mean, the the, the contest with donatism was. It was just fundamental if if we if 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 the donatists had won 
our Christianity would be just, I, I think, unrecognizable. Hmm. Because the Donatists said that the priests who, um, you know, during the, this last climactic persecution, the priests who, um, you know, were not faithful in uh, uh, hanging on to and defending the scriptures that they that they had, you know, they didn't they didn't turn these books over. Um, they were those those were the only real Christians. So, so clerical authority depended on um, not on grace, but on conduct. Right. Very. That's uh, it's fascinating. And <clears throat> when it, I'd like to get back to this question of style, because in some ways it really is what uh, accounts for the popularity of the confessions over the years is something that we return to again and again. And mm -hmm. there are two questions, uh, two quotations I'd like to read. One is um, from Peter Brown, but then another is from the introduction to your translation. And they, they both kind of have a nice uh, uh, response to each other. The first is uh, um, from Peter Brown. Our appreciation of the confessions has suffered from the fact that they have become a classic. We tend to accept or dismiss them according to our own standards, as if Augustine were still our contemporary. In paying Augustine this compliment, we forget that a late Roman man who first opened the copy of the Confessions would have found them a startling book. Traditional forms of literary expression that he had taken for granted would flow into it only to be transformed beyond recognition. And and so the the style question, which your book uh, and your your introduction and your translation speaks into, is uh, you set out at the beginning that. In this work, Augustine usually performs his relationship with God. His account of it is crammed with puns and other wordplay, alliteration, clever allusion, abrupt self-correction, whimsical digression, and self-deprecating rhetorical questions. He even bases figurative language on the feminine gender of certain nouns in Latin and their pronouns, depicting himself as erotically repelled by or attracted to an absent quality or a general situation as if it were a woman. Um, and that that uh, sort of nicely summarizes some of the, these questions of style, which I think really give us a sense of personality, even though maybe there's a lack of autobiography that we expect to find in it, but it is very much part of the voice that uh, comes across on its pages, even uh, over the, the gap of years. Um, yeah, he's, he is, um, it is, it is just really impossible. Um, it's impossible to overstate Augustine's genius. Um, he's like the, the Da Vinci of his age. <laughs> he's like the Isaac, Isaac Newton of, of, of literature. Uh, because the stuff, the stuff that he manages to pull off and, um, you know, the material out of out of which he he fashions this great great work it's just it, it's it's mind boggling you know the he's got what he's got to work with in in terms of both um you know uh style and content what's really prestigious for him to work with and what what will really impress his readers who have some education at least um you know is is pagan it's this um uh you know, highly wrought style, 
it's it's pagan literature himself, and you can see echoes of Virgil uh, throughout throughout the Confessions. You know, but but he's he has renounced his education and you know his early profession as a, as a teacher of rhetoric. Um, he's he's saying you know this is this is useless you know this this um, showboating uh, for the um, uh, for the law courts and this is this is how you anybody who's anybody you know makes a name for himself you, you argue cases in the law law courts and you, you have uh, there's, there's also this uh, uh, literature that's just for show uh, you you um, give encomiums to the to the emperor uh, there's there's that kind of that kind of thing going on and he says you know it's just, it's just worthless and I've turned my back on it well yeah but he uses the fundamentals of it uh, for the rest of his life in promoting Christianity but the thing that he has to work with and he has to work with with very great respect and deference is um, the old Latin scripture which is you know, with all respect, a bag of hammers. Um, it's as a teenager, he was unimpressed with it. He thought it was clunky. He thought it was silly. Um, he, he thought it was, uh, you know, he he didn't, you know, the content himself didn't impress him. You know, um, in particular, this this image of 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 God as you know, acting like a person and acting, um, you know. Um, a different, acting differently according to um, you know different different circumstances, and you know the Manichaeans got a lot of knowledge out of that. This is the dilemma um, he's in, and this is the 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 circle that he manages to square. The square he manages to circle. Um, uh, you know, he this guy from his boyhood he loves Latin literature. And he's going to be a literary star. And he does make it, you know, against the odds. Um, you know, he's really, he's really getting up there um, in, in this literary profession of his. Um, and, uh, but this is all, this whole tradition is pagan. It takes, you know, in Latin, it takes absolutely no account of, of um, uh, Christianity whatsoever. Because there isn't even an original scripture um, there in there in Latin, um, so um, he has to, at least on the surface, he's got to renounce all of that. He's wasted his time. Um, he's he's um, um, he spent his life deplorably up to, up to now um, in this worldly frivolous pursuit. But it's the only thing he has. To give to a um, to a Christian life, mm-hmm. it turns out this is this is the only skill that Christendom is interested in. Hmm. Um, you yeah. know, he, tr- he tries he tries other stuff. You know, he kind of um, uh, he tries to be a contemplative. He tries to be a philosopher, um, but he doesn't have. Um, I think this is evident over the over the the whole of his works. You know, he doesn't have, um, you know, synthetic, riveting uh, ideas about about theology. He is, you know, dragged out of his contemplative community 
because he is he is the speaker that the church needs. The speaker and the writer that the church needs. Well, let's let's uh, turn our attention to a, a specific passage in your translation to see what you're doing. Um, maybe different from what people are familiar with from other translations. One that you mentioned was the encounter with the drunken beggar. What was the episode and, and what are you illuminating in your translation here? Okay. Um, yeah, this is, uh, let's see, book six, um, uh, chapter nine. Nine and, yeah, nine and 10 or is it? Yeah. So 146, I guess. Um, yeah. 145, starting on 145, and yeah, going on uh, in the actual, on 146. In all our kinds of effort, like the effort straightening me so badly now, when my longing sharply prodded me to drag along a load of my own unhappiness that was heaped up higher with the exhaustion of dragging it, we didn't want anything but to reach a state of carefree enjoyment. That beggar had beaten us to it, and perhaps we were never going to arrive. Toward what he'd achieved already, which was evidently the enjoyment of a strictly time-bound happiness, with just a tiny handful of small change he'd panhandled, I was taking a woefully winding course, advancing myself by paths that circled back on themselves. He didn't have true joy, but I, with all my bids for advancement, was in quest of something much less real. He was enjoying himself, no doubt about it. While I was in distress, he was carefree. While I was shaking in my shoes. Um, and it... If anybody had asked me whether I preferred dancing for joy or feeling terrified, I would have answered dancing for joy. If, on the other hand, someone had asked me whether I preferred to be a person like him or a person such as I was then, I would have chosen to be myself with all the worries and fears that overwhelmed me. So, uh, there's there's something in Latin called the in late Latin called the pointed style, uh-huh. um, and so you have lots of antithesis. Uh, lots of lots of little cute riffs. So you take one idea and you just go to kind of spin it out endlessly and endlessly. And he is he is doing this um, concerning concerning the beggar. Um, so um, is it man that he sees in the street who seems to epitomize for himself uh, epitomize for Gustin the the ridiculousness of his of his situation. Um, this homeless guy, this bomb is is happier than he is. Yeah, and, then, uh, and then you go on on page one forty seven uh, to emphasize. I love this paragraph. Um, uh, would you read the one that starts? It does make a difference. Um, oh, it does make a difference where someone gets his joy. I know, and the joy of faithful hope is incomparably far from that fatuous ambition of mine. But even at the time, that beggar was far ahead of me, hardly surprising as he was happier, not only in that he was flooded with cheerfulness, whereas I had anxieties tearing at my insides. Though a few polite words of well-wishing, oh, through a few polite words of well-wishing, he'd obtained his wine, while I, um, while with my lying, I was still seeking swollen-headed self-delusion. 
<laughs> so lots of lots of alliteration there. Yes. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, again, now you see how self-deconstructing mm-hmm. this discourse is. It's amazing. You know, he is the reason that the the sight of the beggar has upset him so much. You know, in his in his account is that, you know, he was uh, rehearsing uh, or frantically um, composing an encomium to the emperor. So this was, you know, big chance for him. You know, he was going to, you know, be be, uh, praising to the sky mendaciously uh, this uh, secular... Uh, autocrat. Um, this is going to be his his big break, but only if he didn't blow it. You know, he had to give a perfect, perfect speech. So he's he's going nuts about this, uh, and then he sees this beggar who, do, he, according to him, doesn't have a care in the world. Um, so he expresses this this um, height of frustration, you know, here I am, I've got all, I've got all these opportunities and all these, all these hopes, and I wouldn't really want to be this guy, want to be me, uh, but yet it's agony to be me, to be a, to be a, a redder. And so this is a, uh, a significant moment and a few more moments like this, and he is in the garden, and he is he is dedicating himself to a Christian life, giving up rhetoric. But he tells the whole story in very elaborate rhetoric. Hmm. Mm-hmm. There is nothing. There is nothing monastic. There is nothing plain. There is nothing clerical about the style of the story. So he gives up rhetoric, and he keeps it. Right, right. He talks about that earlier um, uh, in book one, where he 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 really is uh, bowled over by the the rhetoric um, of like on page twenty nine, and he talks about um, uh, his early influences, and he, he said the men who were set before me to imitate were devastated if scolded for divulging with some foreign impropriety in pronunciation or mistaken grammar any innocent action of theirs. But if they told their lustful indulgences faultlessly with pure and flowing diction, eloquently and elaborately, they would preen with the flattery accorded them. You know, so it's, it's all this attention to form, and yet without any reference to the moral content, I found that striking mm-hmm. and also a kind of reflection of our own uh, uh, modern situation, looking at a lot of modern literature, looking at the, the dominance of form versus uh, content. Yeah, but, you know, mo- modern literature and form has, got, has really got nothing on ancient literature. <laughs> um, yeah, mm-hmm. con- content won. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It won decisively. Um and uh, it didn't in, in, in ancient in ancient literature. It's it's I would say nearly always a um, an equal partner. Well, form and content are, are generally equally equally important and bound together. Of right, course. right. I'm um, thinking of the ones who are who are much more playful with the games of language, like Joyce or Nabokov. Um, mm. You know, um, but 
in any case, the uh, I can he, he still he doesn't let go of it. He doesn't let go of those um, things as you're as you're saying. So, um. right, yeah. Well, he he has this. Um, he has a uh, he has a rather ambivalent attitude. I, I would have to say, you know, he has um, uh, in explicit terms, he is right where he's supposed to be in, in his theology, and he, he says in the Confessions. Um, you know, I could master this very difficult work of of um, Aristotle. You know, it gave me no trouble at, trouble at all. Uh, all my classmates were um, just stumped, uh, but I was fine. I got it, and um, uh, and uh, but but and he he just come, keeps coming back to that. Um, it was worthless. All my virtuosity um, was was worth nothing, and it's actually better to be um, a, a a little guy, um, one of one of the little people <laughs> of the church, um, who who know nothing. Yeah. Uh, but they but they are faithful, and they accept the church's doctrine as as it's given to them. Mm-hmm. You know, they get uh, they they don't have the the temptation to explore um, mm-hmm. or to get uh, prideful, to get puffed up with with their learning. So I'm, I was way worse off. You know, it took me so much longer, and it was so much more dangerous for me because I I thought I knew things and I thought I was just really good at good at things and could you know argue away. Um, so it's better it's better to know nothing. But, and this is what doesn't get said, but it's plain on every page. But, you know, once you know something, once you have these skills, uh, you can't go back. You can't unknow mm. what you know. Yeah. You can't undo the style that you've um, worked full time to develop over 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly wish we had more time to explore uh, some of the other passages that. Um, you so beautifully render in English, especially the whole episode with Monica's death. But um, uh, at the end of our program, we traditionally ask, uh, what is it that you're working on now? Oh, well, I am, I am working on a new translation of the gospel. Um, so that's probably going to take me, uh, take me a couple years now. Okay. Um, but I am already, I'm already at that with uh, very great excitement. And, um, I have, um, there's a preview available if people would like to see it. Uh, if you go to sarahrudin.com um, on the internet, uh, there's a section on my website called uh, Gospels, Gospels Translation Preview. Um, and I talk about a uh, passage um, in Mark, the, the passage in which um, uh, Jesus meets the Syro-Phoenician woman, and um, he ends up, uh, it looks like, insulting her. You know, he says, your people are dogs, and, and I'm here to feed the children. And the 
she replies, well, even the dogs, you know, get to eat what the scraps under the table. And um, what to me is particularly interesting about this passage is, is it, it doesn't say dogs. It says little doggies. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's, it's a word. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean puppies. It doesn't mean simply small dogs. It means little doggy poos. It's a word. It's a word from comedy. Um, it's a word from you know quite lowly literature, and it's mm-hmm. it's uh, slangy and very likely funny. Hmm. And that's the word that he throws at her. As she she throws it back at him, <clears throat> and he seems to be delighted, and he immediately grants her daughter a, a hearing. It changes the whole tone of the passage. Mm-hmm. It goes from you know, the, the standard translations show him being insulting. Um, it, he sounds more teasing mm. um, in a correct translation, and um, she goes she goes right along with him. So it becomes a just surprisingly intimate, um, rather tender, tender exchange. Yeah, it's and it's of course a- the woman. Oh, go on. Sorry. Oh, it's it's just one of these things that uh, I think really the the uh, humor of Jesus is often flattened out in a number of you know the committee translations, um, and we just miss it because some of it is uh, sarcasm or this kind of uh, back and forth banter, and uh, you know it's just it's um, underappreciated. I think. Yeah, you know, I I really. I really have to deplore, though I understand, the the caution of um, translators who, you know, looking at a word like, you know, cunaria, little doggies, um, say, well, I just, I just can't make Jesus say little doggies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got a, your word flattened, flattened out, um, your term for this is, I think, uh, uh, exactly, exactly right. Um, they are, they have the, you know, translators have have the best motivations, um, and they they are being respectful. But what they do in the end is is they um, take the, the personality and the emotion and the drama out of sacred literature, mm-hmm. and that. Sacred literature does not gain by that. Yeah. It just doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. Well, I've, I, for one, very much look forward to your forthcoming translation. But in the meantime, um, uh, I recommend to our listeners uh, Augustine's Confessions, available from Modern Library in June of 2017. So thank you, Sarah, for your time. And uh, perhaps we'll have you back on when the translation comes out. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been lovely. That concludes my conversation with Sarah Rudin about her new translation of Augustine's Confessions, published by the Modern Library in June of 2017. 